0: Hello, I'm Jonathan Bowman Perks, and welcome to my favourite time of the week. And as part of the Inspiring Leadership series, I'm very pleased to have Dr. Ruth Van Herfer. And Ruth has uh, many awards and listings uh, in the financial technology and governance areas. Uh, she also did a doctorate in finance, and um, particularly in 2018, 2019, and 2020. She was voted in the top 10 global fintech influencers. And she operates at that nexus of finance, technology, and regulation. And she's passionate about the digital ecosystem uh, of the future. So, Ruth, welcome. Uh, Love to hear a bit about what you're currently doing, your view on the current pandemic that we're dealing with at the moment, and a little bit about your leadership background.
1: Thank you very much, Jonathan. Great to be with you. So what am I currently doing? I've stepped down from a long uh, career in banking uh, and moved into a more portfolio-oriented career two years ago. I'm on the board of an Irish bank called Permanent TSB. I'm on the board of a fintech in the UK called Digital Identity Net. I'm a partner at a small venture capital fund called Gauss Ventures. I strategically advise a trade body in Brussels on payments still. Um, and I'm just generally quite curious, connecting to lots of fintechs in the markets, as well as my old ecosystem of banking and infrastructure.
0: Very good. And, and we, we've got this um, crisis that people are dealing with at the moment. It will run for months and years in different ways, but it'll have a huge impact on our lives. Uh, this year, 2020, 2021, and beyond. Um, a lot of companies have had to pivot and go digital very quickly in faster than they ever did before. And we're seeing quite a number of fintech companies coming to the fore. Uh, what's, what's your view of, of how the pandemic's affected you personally? And, and just an observation of the good and the bad that's come from it.
1: Yes. So personally, interestingly, I've had a very positive impact so far. My family didn't suffer anything, friends didn't suffer, um, and I was glad to be able to work from home. I had already uh, more of a home working mode, but having my partner and my children at home and also seeing the children connect better and play together was, was and is very lovely, and we we have the luxury of not living in the city center, so we live very near to some lakes and nature so there 's a lot more sport, a lot more walking in nature, and observing fish and birds these days which is which is very nice but of course, um, back to the digitization point I mean, for many years, we talk about digitization, transforming businesses, etc, and once this sort of meteorite hits you. Um, it was very amazing to see how fast certain institutions got it really right uh, and others really struggled. I think the biggest challenge longer term is going to be the resilience and robustness of systems also in light of cyber risk because as everything moves into digital um, you really start seeing the risks in different ways Um, and we obviously are starting now to see quite a lot of identity fraud and digital fraud happening this will just increase because the frauds tend to move with the targets but overall it's been it's been a good lesson because it helped the market to accelerate it will Mm. take time to consolidate and get more stable but it's been good for the market
0: yeah great wow well i i think it's going to be a very interesting time both um on the upside and on the downside but people have to lead the market and follow some exciting new trends if they're to survive. You've got to, you've got to adapt, yeah. um, which, which leaders have to do. And let's talk about leadership. Um, which group of people tend to inspire you the most and, and what are the qualities that you like and respect about that and find that interesting?
1: So I'm generally impressed and inspired by scientists because they're so curious and intrigued and questioning. And they only stop when they find the answer and then they go to the next question. So the curiosity and the drive of having a vision, but also realizing it and pushing ahead, I think is a very important um, type of energy that you need as a leader. Um, And at the same time, as a leader, helping others to grow um, and helping them to grow even beyond you is, is, in my view, very, very important and inspires me in what I do.
0: Yeah, I, I think it is. It's it's this mentoring. It's this coaching. It's helping other people, and giving them ideas they would never have, have had before. Um, I was listening to General uh, Mad Dog Mattis, who's been advisor to Trump as his Secretary of State for Defense, and um, but he was just talking about throughout his career, he's always read widely, and you know, you're someone who's read as we'll talk about later on from an early age and learned and go on the internet and you've written three books. And so this, this learning I think is key as a leader. Um, and as a leader as well, we were also talking about the three hums, humility, humanity, and humor, Mm -hmm. which my friend Roger Steer, um, coined the term from somewhere, maybe it was his own. I like it. And under the humanity and the humility side, it's for us to to realize that we're not always right. We get things wrong. And in your career in banking and now advising in the financial technology and governance side, um, when, have, when have you got it wrong? What kind of things did you tend to get wrong? And what have you learned to do things better and be a better leader now?
1: Yes, I would have. I would get things wrong if I make assumptions too early, too quickly without actually knowing my counterpart well. Mm. This tended to happen, for example, in the past when I worked uh, with the industry and when I was by that time working for a big global bank, it was very easy to fall back into the attitude all the others must be operating in a similar way. And if you're doing stuff at a market level, you negotiate a law, you build an infrastructure together, you have to be you have to make sure that everyone can can satisfy the needs everyone can satisfy the requirements so you often look at the lowest common denominator and trying to lift them up to the extent possible rather than falling back into your old mode coming from that perspective or everyone must be able to to be delivering this so the key learning in that was understanding your counterparts well something that i i used to do well when i was negotiating laws with individual politicians for example But once you get into a market environment, you have to actually understand the other bank well, knowing what their business model is and how they operate and where the constraints are so that you don't uh, make those wrong assumptions and create friction in the team.
0: Mm. I think it must have been very interesting in your time in Brussels when you're working with a number of the, the European banking institutions and organizations and influencing people there. And and I, I was taught by somebody the the old concept of WIFM, YFM and whammy. What's in it for me, and whammy what's against my interest, and that you you know you have a particular agenda you try and get across, and you put it on paper, list the people, the, the stakeholders, and uh, what's in it for them, what's against their interest, and try and get yourself in their shoes. My daughter Brani was saying to me that my other daughter Harriet, about the age of six, was having challenges with a friend at school, and I. And I mentioned to her to put herself in her shoes, the other girl's shoes, and see it from their perspective. And Harriet has really taken this to heart. She's now a, a superb teacher. She's just been promoted to a deputy head of her, her year. And um, she always tries to get into the other person's shoes and see it from their perspective. So I think that that's really uh, helps us, um, is, is my feeling. Okay, and then what about amusing stories? Uh, in your time leadership, what would, what would you have as an amusing story?
1: A very amusing story was how I met, I guess, the love of my life, I call him, uh, which was a business meeting, a, quite a serious business meeting at a big industry conference. And uh, when I came to the meeting, I arrived late, as I sometimes do. And uh, in front of me sat a guy who looked a bit like a secondhand car dealer. And he thought I was the coffee girl. <laughs> And then from one second to the other, I handed in my managing director business card of a global bank and his eyes became quite big. Uh, And then we immediately started a very in-depth dialogue about quite a complicated payment legislation that I had negotiated with regulators in Brussels. And he had read probably 20 times and asked me very intricate questions on interpretations of certain articles. So it was so surreal and it was literally, it was only the two of us. There were other people in the meeting. We didn't see or hear anyone else. It was just us wow. leaning into each other. Um, and it was just surreal. So that was a very funny moment and uh, it led to very good things after that.
0: Well, I'm really pleased. It's a lovely story. That's a lovely story. And then, um, upbringing shapes us as leaders and, um, I'd love to hear about your upbringing in Munster, in Germany, and tell us a bit about that and your mother, your father, and and the kind of values they instilled in you, which you have served you well in your in your career in city and in in other in other uh, jobs that you're doing as an advisor and as a an net.
1: Yeah, I had a very lovely upbringing. Beautiful city of Munster. We lived together with my grandmother. She lived with us, and I have a younger brother who's four years younger, and we always had this really. Happy family life, we would cycle to school in the morning, come home for lunch, it was always the debating table, so we as children were treated as adults with respect, being part of the big table from day one. And we would listen to what my father reported back from his work background, what happened during the day, my grandmother, everyone was discussing and everyone gave their reports. Um, It was a way of listening to how people speak, how people argue. Um, And it was something which, which really came in very, very early. I was impressed by how my father built his own career. He came from very humble backgrounds and his mission was to help people from, Being a young boy onwards, he helped, you know, some other children at school to learn Latin. He always read a lot and worked hard to be able to go to university. And he then became a medical doctor because he wanted to help people. And I think that self-made drive is something that really inspired me to do the same and to know that if you want to get somewhere and you really want to realize your dreams, you put in the hard work, but it will ultimately pay off.
0: Mm. He clearly has been a great influence on you. And what about your mother? What, what role modeling did she give you? As, as well as treating you as an adult and including you in adult conversations, what else uh, has stuck with you? Because you are in a banking system, financial services, which is still woefully inadequate in its equality and diversity and the number of women that they have on there even BAME, and we're talking about Black Lives Matter at the moment, but there's not enough diversity in the banking system yet. Still, great fine words, targets, but they're not achieving it. So linking your mother and believing in you as a woman and what you could achieve anywhere, doing anything, uh, and the banking system, love to hear your views.
1: Yeah, my mother, I always... I always feel she has a third eye. She can see things that others can't see. She has a certain wisdom that she shares. And that was very inspiring for me from a sort of female, more mystical angle, I guess. Um, and it was, there was never, I guess the most important saying of my mum was, I can't do it is not in my dictionary. So if I, as a child would say, I can't do this, I can't do it. She would say, well, that doesn't exist in my dictionary. So it was a complete outright rejection for for admitting to failure, admitting not to be able to do stuff, not getting mm. yourself into something. Um, and that really kept me going. And that's something I'm using with my own children today. <laughs> they can't. They say they can't do it. You haven't tried hard enough. It, everything is possible. I think it's that everything is possible mentality. And that allowed me to, to get into areas where maybe many women don't get into. And you're absolutely right. In the financial services industry, there's not enough diversity. I was very... I was very lucky to join a global institution which by its nature has diversity in terms of ethnical backgrounds, male, female. But the male-female point is still an issue as the females go to that point in their lives when they have a family and children. Many of the females don't come back and we still haven't fixed that coming back part to give them the right incentives and inspirations for their next career step. So Mm. that's something that is very much amiss. And the fintech world equally... Uh, there are more women there than in the financial services world but i guess when we look at the engineering side at the coding side we are still missing lots of women and that of course creates bias in the algorithm nature of of the digital ecosystem itself
0: and and you were saying something we were discussing earlier about the fact of working from home or what uh, some companies call remote first in other words to not differentiate and make it a bad thing to work from home that just the first thing we do is remote working that's the first thing and so that anybody working from home shouldn't be disadvantaged by a couple of people who are in the office looking at a whiteboard which the people working from home can't see so make it equal to people wherever you're working from around the world so it could make us actually more connected doesn't really matter on your location you're on this like you and i it doesn't matter where you are and where i am we're having this conversation um so so you were saying how how it's actually allowed more equality where a a pair of people male female same sex whatever that they're at home they can divide up the chores and if they have any children they can divide up the time that they spend it's not always reliant on the woman what's Say a bit more on that, I thought it was very interesting. So
1: in our luxurious um, financial services background in, in developed countries, we really have this benefit of homeworking that has turned out to work well from an equality perspective. Women are very good at organizing themselves, at multitasking. And whilst women so far have maybe taken some part-time jobs, working from home and looking after the family, it was now an opportunity for both partners work at home but to share as you say to share things with children and other people more equally and to be available Uh, and i've heard from quite a number of people i know in the market that they have no intention whatsoever to go back to a full-time office job because uh, there are so many meetings that usually don't result in anything i think it is quite important to get teams around the table once in a while to give it a boost to let creativity flow and iterate new ideas But for the day-to-day, there's a lot of stuff you can do remotely. And I personally um, have had a very exciting time with remoteness. Initially, I thought, oh, God, the market's going to crash. Everything will end. But then it turned out that lots of people reached out to me. I reached out to others. I made friends with new business partners on Zoom that I'd never met in person before. There's a whole new world that had opened up through this remote working because people are able to adjust quickly and it really gives everyone that same footing. And I think that is going to make quite a difference between the the male, female or partner equality aspect of it.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. And then uh, in our lives um, as leaders, we have highlights and we have lowlights. I've had some dark moments and learned a lot from them. Uh, if you were looking at one of the dark moments in your professional career, uh, what was that? And what did you learn from it, which has shaped your way of working today?
1: Yeah, I was on my first maternity leave and writing my second book. Sounds very obvious, doesn't it? (laughs) Um, And um, I, I had sort of quite a nice provocative title for the book and thought it was all going to be as much fun as the first one. And I had sort of, sort of overlooked the fact that the organization I was working for became quite risk-averse and compliance-driven and that it was sort of perceived as a risk if one of your employees publishes a book with certain messages that maybe the organization wasn't standing behind. So I guess a recommendation to anyone who wants to, you know, be free and share their own personal views that sometimes working for certain large organizations can be a barrier to that. You can really only be truly independent in the market with your views. If, if you have an independent um, sort of role, uh, you maybe advise others, you're a non-executive director, but you have not got that corporate dependency because that can be quite limiting. And that was my learning that in fact, next time I do something like that, I'll do it without a big organization in the background because that can be a hindrance.
0: Which is what you're doing with your third book. Yes. and. Um, I would love to know what the original title was going to be of your second book. And then what you ended up calling it. Cause um, Mm. we had a laugh about the fact when I was an army officer for my first 20 years, I've been 20 years in business since then, but my my book was going to be the army needs more maverick officers. I'd written, I'd I'd got a cartoonist to do some cartoons and I had some themes. This is a short book, but I just checked with my um, old commanding officer, who'd become a general and very senior in the army. And I said, look, you know, what do you think? Do you think I could publish this? And he goes, if you value your career, don't publish it. And I thought that was a real shame. So I never did, never did publish it. Um, and I uh, had to, had to come out of the army before I published my two books. Um, mm-hmm. And um, I think my third one will be inspiring CEOs and their, and their top teams. Um, but based really on these hundred to 200 videos that I'm doing like this one. Uh, where i I learned so much from uh, from the leaders like you that i'm interviewing what was what was the um the first title and what did you end up as the final title?
1: yeah, so the first title was the regulatory black hole mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, the ultimate title was "Transaction Banking and the Impact of Regulatory Change, which sort of was a mouthful of very boring sort of <laughs> words lined up, but at the same time when you actually go into Google search because no one has written books about transaction banking it actually comes up on top so it was it was a good and a bad thing at the same time but i remember negotiating with them to say can't we call it the galaxy of regulation or something and say stop with the star theme stop with the galaxies and black holes not none of this so it turned out to be really boring but quite effective in terms of getting the, you yeah. know, the particular. Oh, what was
0: the problem with the idea of the black hole why didn't they like that
1: Well, it was a very convoluted story Um, before my time, more or less 12 to 15 years before I even joined the bank. They had um, a real investment banking scandal um, with a company called Parmalat, an Italian company. So there were Italian traders that had used the Italian sort of code word boccanera, which translated means black hole. For their Gosh. illicit tradings, <laughs> that's and it was so convoluted. And it really, I had nothing to do with it, um, yeah. but it was perceived as a potential reputational risk if if one person would make the link of Bocanera and regulatory black hole. So that was enough to get everyone very excited at a, okay. at a global CEO level.
0: Okay. Well, from dark moments and black <laughs> holes to proudest moments of your career and your life, what are, what are some of the couple of the proudest moments of your career and your life?
1: I guess the first real proud moment was when a legislation that I had negotiated over five years in Brussels finally was approved in the European Parliament with a very short vote, which really only takes half a minute. But uh, I actually was in the European Parliament sitting in the viewing gallery, and that was just very exciting in Strasbourg, so not Brussels, it was in Strasbourg, and I also uh, visited my grandfather after that, who's, who was French. He's unfortunately dead now. And so that was a very proud moment in my early career. I think later on, um, the ability to um, to achieve that consensus with the industry, with different stakeholders, and get everyone to move forward in one direction, to actually deliver something, was always a very... Um, proud moment because it can take quite a while to negotiate with different parties and their own languages sometimes and then amalgamate everything together to explain to everyone that there's a benefit for everyone in you of you in doing this together Um, and another very proud moment of my more recent career as a NED was to see that I must exude comfort and trust to people and I had people from different parts of a big organization coming to me raising really serious issues in terms of how businesses uh, were maybe badly run and there were issues with diversity and other things and they came to me as a board member as opposed to others and that made me very proud and i gave them the advice i could and it's that trust you know knowing Hmm. that you trust trusted i think that that makes me very happy
0: very nice and then uh we're almost at the end but um top practical leadership tips that you'd give out you've got a few useful tips what would be your top five tips to pass on to people which would help them in their in their careers
1: yeah so you have to be genuinely interested and curious and focus your attention to detail because ultimately all of those details tend to connect into something bigger and I think I mentioned that earlier in this interview Um, you have to be passionate there should be no respect for title. Treat everyone equally because you'd never know where some inspiring ideas can come from. Um, Surround yourself with people that rather don't agree with you so that you get that friction of iteration and seeing as many perspectives on an issue as possible. Um, Know how to know what your customers want. So be client-centric and really talk to your clients directly, get your teams to do that in both a formal and informal way because there, there are many ways to engage your clients. Um, diversity of thought um, and don't make assumptions.
0: Mm, very good. <laughs> very good. And um, your future personal leadership development plans for you, uh, maybe a book, recom- I know you're writing a third book and you're reading the internet, but you know, any particular book that's influenced you throughout your life. Uh, and then um, I'll ask one final question, but um, yeah, future, your future personal development plans and a book recommendation that you've read during your life that you found useful.
1: <laughs> so the leadership uh, development plan, I think I'm always sort of getting for some, ready for something bigger. Um, at the moment I'm working on a very exciting, bigger project which will take a few years to develop so I guess watch this space. Uh, Book recommendation, my goodness, I haven't actually looked into that at all. At the moment, we're reading The Wishing Chair with the Children, which I have to say is quite inspiring, because it teaches you a lot of uh, life lessons, uh, including patience, and I think that's a very important skill that every leader should have, so i probably leave it at that. Uh, For my book, I'm doing a lot of Research more in the online media world newspapers, so i 'm much more in in the current affairs as opposed to uh, what, what are you
0: going to call what are you going to call the title of this book?
1: Uh-huh. see for this one, now that we have all the freedom in the world to give it a crazy title i haven 't got one yet <laughs> <laughs> so again, watch this space, but it, it shall be um, it shall be a good one, um, mm-hmm. definitely not a boring title. Could
0: you say what the theme is or is it top secret so you can 't tell me yet? no,
1: um, the theme is really about. Well, it's a combination around technology, finance, and government, and how these interactions are rapidly changing because of technology. And it's really, it ends up hopefully giving governments the right perspectives on how to use technology in the right way, Mm -hmm. and how to not do it. Um, And I guess at the core, the theme is almost, you know, a return to re-decentralization, because we see that technology doesn't only distribute, it can decentralize and what you do with decentralized governance. And how is that actually impacting government again? And you have examples ranging from money down to, um, you know, transactions and IPOs, all examples of how that changes and ultimately how that changes the social contract between government and people, making it a digital social contract. So it has. So also you, you see,
0: that's really interesting. I'm just interested, do you see it becoming, more decentralized than it currently is with digital technology
1: yeah technology is pushing for decentralization and the question is how governments will manage that and how they will see the benefit and i think there's a general question around the role of the government towards the citizen the individual how will the old social contract concepts from the philosophers, starting with socrates um, change into a new digital social contract
0: fantastic Okay, and then you you asked a few people what they uh, saw as your legacy and what do you think your your legacy will be?
1: Yeah, I thought instead of rather talking about my own leadership quality legacy that I think I've provided so far, I'd asked a few friends and people that worked for me in the past. So one thing that was standing out was that I'm able to motivate and inspire people quite Mm -hmm. strongly um, and, and build them up if they're frustrated, if they don't see a way forward. I would sort of look at alternatives and paths and I tend to connect people well to each other. Mm -hmm. So it's all about that network. Um, And that also goes hand in hand with another feedback I received around being quite good at breaking the silos. And if you think about financial institutions are very siloed. That's why they they don't move fast enough and they don't Mm -hmm. see the opportunity. And the same goes with individuals. It's about connecting individuals and seeing how these connections can actually become a fruitful ground for further ideas and development.
0: Sounds great. Well, Dr. Ruth uh, Werner, thank you very much indeed. It's a really interesting uh, interview, and uh, I hope everybody else enjoyed it as much as I did. So, thank you for your time.
1: Thank you very much. Jennifer.
0: So, now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Perks, And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch, or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.